All right. Today we're talking about cryptocurrencies, Dogecoin and the Shiru Inu coin, I think, which is the competitor of the Dogecoin. Just kidding. Welcome to Disrupt TV. You're now in the green room and uh, we're going to do some quick introductions with our wonderful guests around the world and more importantly, uh, give you a little bit of insight of what everyone's doing and then we'll jump into the main show. So, Walter, where are you calling in from and what are we going to talk about today? So, Ray, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. I'm uh, calling in from Johannesburg, South Africa. Uh, other side of the the other hemisphere, we, we're now entering uh, our winter months, um, and uh, I'm I'm going to be talking uh, to you and your audience about the future of work and and specifically the future of jobs in this digital economy that we're navigating through. Uh, so I'm looking wonderful. forward to that. Wonderful, wonderful, Angela. Where are you calling in from, and what are we talking about? And you know, love the glasses. <laughs> Hi, coming in from Houston, Texas. Uh, good to be back here with you guys. And coming in just as we enter hurricane season, coming out of a big freeze and talking about uh, cascades of disruptive events and the impact on our lives and decision making. Oh, it's going to be very, very important. And Viraj, welcome. Where are you calling in from? What are we talking about? Hey, thank you. First of all, thank you so much, Ray and Wala, to uh, in, uh, invite me here. Uh, I'm calling from Philadelphia. I, I work at Thomas Jefferson University and Jefferson Health. Um, yeah, and today we are going to talk a little bit about, you know, what's the future of, uh, you know, since the pandemic, how do employees feel about, how can you retain employees, and where do universities go next? You know, they have seen a lot of change in the past 12 months. Wonderful. Okay, with that, we're going to do the countdown. You guys ready? Three, two one and we're going to go live so we're going live hello and welcome thank you for joining us on disrupt tv my name is vala afshar i'm the chief digital evangelist at salesforce and your co-host for the next hour we welcome you to follow us on twitter at disrupt tv show send ray myself and our distinguished guest your questions live using hashtag disrupt tv and we'll do our best to answer them in the next hour it's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He is the CEO, founder of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business. And just in a few weeks, you're going to see his new book, new bestseller, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Ray's business technology news contributor. You see him weekly on Fox Business, Young Finance, CNBC, Cheddar, and other media outlets. He's a global sought-after keynote speaker and, in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my friend, my co-host, co-founder, and, of course, Bala Afshar, the chief digital evangelist at Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. Uh, when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet, especially those after the show. But it's not about us. It's always about our guests, about their insights, and what they have to say. Who do we have this week, Vala, to kick it off? It's our pleasure to have Viraj Patbardhan, Vice President of Academic Digital Learning at Thomas Jefferson University. Thomas Jefferson University is a professional university with 8,400 students in more than 160 undergraduate and graduate programs in 10 colleges and four schools. Viraj is a passionate designer who likes to design for common user needs. He has always believed that to create holistic solutions, he needs to understand the user's world from their perspective. Creating transformational students and patient experiences, one of his strongholds. At Jefferson, Barrage works with academic faculty, administration, multimedia and instructional designers, researchers, and leadership to deliver seamless digital solutions for Jefferson's consumers. With over 20 years of experience, Barrage is able to bring ideas from different industries to reimagine learning by design. You can follow Viraj on Twitter at Viraj underscore says, uh, V-I-R-A-J underscore S-A-Y-S. Welcome, Viraj, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. Thank you, Wala, and thank you, Ray. Thank you for having me together today. Hey, pleasure. Our pleasure. We're really excited to have you here, and you've been part of transformation. Now you're part of learning, um, and, you know, healthcare has gone through a massive amount of changes, a lot of challenges, um, and really about, you know, being more resilient, more agile. And of course, there's also a short, I mean, a skills shortage in the healthcare environment today. So what are the changes that are being made inside how organizations learn, um, especially when we think about the continuous learning environment that's supposedly out there? 
Right. Yeah, I think I think healthcare has seen a lot. I think is an understatement. Uh, you know, I think and first of all, thank you to all the healthcare workers who have been tremendous throughout the past 12 months. Um I I think in in terms of learning, one thing that that happened in the past 12 months was that last 5 years healthcare saw digital acceleration so you know a lot of investment made into digital health a lot of different startups venture capitalists but really what healthcare learned in the past 12 months is how to be more resilient and how to be how to be an organization where we are always ready for any particular challenge not that healthcare systems were not ready but now they are they have started to think more about how can we at the human capital level we always were good we always were willing to do more than what was expected out of us but now we can equip ourselves with more digital tools with 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 tools that are not just going to deliver a good uh, uh a really good experience for the patients but it's also definitely going to make an impact on their lives i think the pandemic was was a shock and i think healthcare and higher ed to a certain extent needed sort of a shock where digital acceleration was uh, something that we should do versus it's not something that we should do that's the only thing we have to do now moving forward and not think about how can we use a paper and be more effective but how can we use a digital tool and be more effective so i think from a from an employee perspective and i had chance to talk to many of our staff members um they said that you know the smaller more meaningful and they call them innovations were sort of at the heart of this it wasn't the big mm-hmm. systems or it wasn't but somebody came and said hey i need this workflow fixed in the next two days and somebody stood up and said i'll do it and they did it and and those type of smaller learnings are going to take the organizations healthcare organizations in particular a long way over the next 5 years sure sure i i totally agree uh i was interested in your bio uh referencing reimagining learning by design mm-hmm. um i was often asked how my company was able to move nearly 60,000 employees to work from home in a matter of a weekend mm-hmm. a couple of days right so um and there was a realization that um to achieve that speed um you needed to design for movement mm-hmm. uh being a cloud first company uh was designed for movement applications in the cloud as long as you had internet access giving employees smart devices and populating those smart devices with business applications securely at scale was designed for movement right. we had the uh, we had the uh, jeff bezos chief of staff who was called jeff shadow on our show a few weeks ago and he talked to us about uh, design principles at amazon which was based on working backwards understand mm-hmm. the customer needs and work backwards towards designing products services right. offerings So the importance of design was really really significantly uh, more understood given the pandemic and what companies needed to do. And you are an expert in terms of learning by design. So when when we hear words like human centric design, can you define that for us and our audience? What does it sure. mean to really put design at the center and and the north star in terms of how you bring value to market? Yeah, that's a good question and if you ask, you know, then human centered designers they all will define it differently <laughs> and i think that's the kind of good part of it because yeah. i think it's to me Diversity what design is yeah uh, i think for me uh, personally every designer has a toolbox and they have certain tools in that and they use that to design and solve a problem but human centered design i think it's 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 very simple and i give this example so many times is that i that of my mom when we were growing up she used to work from 11 to 5 and at 5 o'clock when she's coming back home she would start thinking about what am i going to cook for my kids right and the first thing is she's like okay what's in my refrigerator today what do i have in my pantry okay i have these six things and you know i have to have dinner you know on the table by 7 so i have about an hour whatever time and so i'm going to make this right people don't look at that as design but to me that's design that's something that here are some of the uh requirements that i have which is giving out a dinner uh here is the stuff that i already have what can i do within my limits to create something that is going to help the people that need it so to me humans at the design a lot of time people say you know put the user in in the center and you know everyone around it which is true which is valid but i think it's about solving for those common needs very sometimes they are very simple sometimes they are very difficult but solve for the needs and then the other example 
and where sometimes and i'm not saying but but people make a difference uh, is that the need versus the want and the example i have is yeah. i yeah. need an iphone versus i want an iphone two different situations <laughs> altogether right and so i think you have to be very careful about the want because you know everyone wants everything versus what do you really need if you solve for the need i think you're going to make small but meaningful progress throughout so to me that's how i look at it all the time terrific terrific definition yeah, and he, you know, in your case, what's what are the big areas where we're seeing, for example, job shortages right now, um, and and how does that kind of map back to skills that are needed, right? Because we keep hearing like physicians are burned out. We hear that nurses are hard to find, techs are you know very difficult to find as well, and and that there's just shortages everywhere from staffing across the board to you know just in terms of like even in the medical school pipeline as well for physicians. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think one thing we learned is that, and, and this is not just pandemic, but before that, and, um, you know, you, you have heard Dr. Klasko, who's a CEO, he talks about, you know, something Clayton Christensen talks, is jobs to be done. And so future education needs to be aligned into what type of jobs people are going to need to do versus a traditional like, academic degree, which is still very valid. How can you make it more based on to what they will need day one when they start to work so that's one from the university side from the healthcare side i think in my personal opinion it's more of if you want to give better experiences to the people who come to you the patients then you need to have good experiences for your staff because if you don't have happy staff if you don't have staff going through a good experience they're not going to be delivered good experience to their patients no, it's, it's not a fair take it out on the patients i mean it's right or, or even then you know even if you don't take it out onto the patient it's, it's not going to be something that's coming from inward it's going to be something that i'm doing my job so i think and many organizations including ours have focused on you know how can we make sure that the employee experience is um is equal if not better than what you give to the to the patients right because these are the people who are going to be in front of your patients they are obviously doing an amazing job treating the patients but how can we equip them better so that they can go above and beyond so i think in terms of shortages uh, i think right now is, is the time in the pandemic that the pandemic has just started to go down so there's a lot of burnout there's a lot of you know tiredness among the people so that will kind that curve will come down and you'll go back but I think immediately what you need to do is you can just say that the pandemic is over and the health system is normal. These people have spent 14 months working God knows how many hours every day. So I think you have to start working now almost, and I'm going to call it rehabilitation of them so that they are prepared. They are going back to their normal. So if unforeseen situation like this comes again, I hope not, um, you know, they are not just prepared and mentally, but also equipped uh, with better experiences, better tools, and just an an idea and an, and a belief that my organization is going to stand behind me and will be willing to equip me with anything that I need. Sure, makes a lot great of sense. Point, great point. I'm in the Boston area, Bharat, so I'm always in front of uh, college university students, um, and often I get asked, uh, "Did you always want to be a chief digital evangelist, or how did you study? What did you study to get there?" I'm like, I had no idea that was going to be a title <laughs> in my future. Are you kidding me? I studied electrical engineering. I thought I would be in a cubicle writing software the rest of my career. So, so my response to them is just understand the importance of continuous learning. Understand the value of staying teachable, because it's likely by the time you're at a university and you're working for the next 40 years, you're probably going to be in 14, 15, 16 different jobs, different titles. Many of the titles don't even exist yet. Right. Uh, you know, certainly I had, you know, so, so, so when we talk about this importance of continuous learning, I'm interested to know, you know, how does that play a role in designing for better stakeholder experience, whether it's employees, customers, partners, whether it's, fa you know, faculty, administration, whatever it may be, how do you, how do you reinforce continuous learning for your students, knowing that the change velocity, speed and direction is unprecedented right now? So right. you really can't, uh, you know, if you're not adaptable, it's, it's, it's really hard to stay relevant. Right. I think that's excellent point. I think a lot of times it comes from the students themselves. They directly won't say, but there are enough trends where you can start looking at this is something that the students really interested. A good example of that, and I wouldn't call them students, but you know, these are people who want to learn and get better. So nursing informatics probably 10 years ago wasn't a thing. I um, mean, it was a thing, but it wasn't called that or it wasn't as prevalent. 
But now you see each and many of the nurses actually embracing that. Many of them are actually looking into it as something that will help me take that one little step in my career, which is going to make me better than you know people around me. And then the second step and the third step. The the thing to remember is that the bigger the degrees you make and the more uh, the education is stretched out, the less people are going to be interested. Because I already had a bachelor's degree, then I did a master's, and now you're asking me to invest X time again. But education that is short and in bursts of, you know, sometimes it could be even hours or even one hour, right? But that is more meaningful to me is something where the trend is going to go in the next five years. Sure. Um, the degrees would be still there, but I think it's how incrementally I can just keep, you know, adding layers and layers onto what I have. And so to your point, you know, we may have, uh, you know, degrees or titles that we have never heard or yeah. just roles that have a mix of like a physician, um, you know, maybe someone who works in, in the you know cafeteria and maybe someone who does something else, but still a very valid role. So I think that's what we are going to see. A lot of mix is going to happen. So competency-based I mean. competency education, micro-credentials, you know, ability to, uh, you know, like you said, identify jobs to be done that are relevant in the moment right. and make sure there's training and accreditation to support the learning uh, journey. Makes sense. Right. Makes sense. Sorry, Ray. No. Oh, no, that's a great point, right? I mean, I... I mean, I was a product manager when people didn't even know what a product <laughs> manager was. I mean, now people go to school to study product management. Like if someone's like, right. hey, I want to go be an analyst, like I, I wouldn't know where to start. Like, I mean, we're trying to teach everybody like what an analyst is, right? But that, that it's so crazy how much of that has changed. And that gets to this point, right? You know, as, as Bala was talking about, you know, continuous learning, you know, this the education path, path that's around there. What are the dynamic skills that are needed, right? The, the skill sets that are important, maybe they're digital skill sets, maybe it's some of the dynamic skills that people people are looking for, especially in healthcare and, and in other positions, uh, as you're seeing in terms of the, what people want to do for learning? Yeah, so I think I think in terms of, uh, you can call dynamic skills in two ways. One that I, I have learned is that whatever you're doing as, as your work, uh, try learning around it. So if I am, a, for example, if I'm a nurse, pay attention to nurse informatics, pay attention to the EMRs that what they are doing, pay attention so the to the edges, get the edges, so the edges, right. But I think the second thing is also be aware of think about uh, things that are happening in your bigger circle. So with the physicians, with your administration, uh, with some of the um, physician offices, so AI comes across to one big thing, you mm -hmm. don't need to know how to design an AI, but you need to know if I ever have to use it, how can I use it? And who I have to go to use it. So I think there's a lot, lot of times when, when I try and solve. When someone comes to me, I says, "You don't have to solve the problem. You just need to know who is in the best position to solve your problem." And a lot of times, people don't know that. Uh, so I think that's one skill I think that you can help point. people develop. Because I, I, I can do everything, and I shouldn't, right? Because I'll be yeah. the only one employed. <laughs> but I think what I, what you need to know, and what you need to do really is, you need to know. Um, what am I going to what am I going to do to find someone who can do that job for me? So that's one skill and, and I don't know if that can be a teachable skill. Probably mm -hmm. it is, but I think it's something uh, to think of as like how do you make sure that people understand that? I think that's one big one which is missing in my my point. I wish when I was in school there was a class on resourcefulness because you know uh, I would definitely benefit from knowing where to go to to get the skills I need to get the jobs to be done. My last question, uh, Viraj, um, speak to, so we're talking about design, so let's talk about designing a future university. We've had some very controversial guests on our show with very bold and dire predictions in terms of universities uh, moving forward in terms of, is there is, is there room for improvement in terms of delivering value to stakeholders? Where do you see universities in the next five to 10 years? Um, you know, how they deliver, what they deliver, and how do you maintain relevance and vitality given the expense right. associated with universities? Right, I, I think the, the, the there was a talk last year in October, November, that this is the new normal. And I think what the pandemic did is that it challenged the, the existing business models that the universities had. And I think this new normal in, is here to stay in some form or fashion. There were a lot of universities who were already uh, you know, teaching online, who were already doing things that were more digital, that were more outside of the brick and mortar you know, walls of their university. 
but where I personally think universities are going to go is that there's going there's a trend now that there's like almost like a parallel educational universe that you see coming up. So you have the Courseras, the Udemy's of the world, and then you have something like a master class, which is a completely different way that you're learning. Um, there is the Khan Academy and similar. So there is like a, a big hub of education where people can go and get the education that they need. And then you have the universities who have traditionally for hundreds of years have, you know, taught a, a class or a particular you know subject in in one way i think universities are going to change the way they teach the, to the students they are going to go more in terms of how can i make sure that students get the same experience uh, while they are at home but they get the same experience when they're here so i think in the next 5 years you're you're going to see universities changing little bit every year not that just suddenly going to you know abolish everything that they were doing and go but they are going to make that leap and they are going to go to a point where they are going to become the bigger players right right now you see the coursera becoming like the big and and obviously for a great reason they have been able to do that but i think universities are going to catch up they are going to be able to see uh, you'll see universities quickly changing their way and i think there's a big notion that just because it's online it shouldn't be expensive um i uh, that's, <laughs> that's hoping that <laughs> yeah but i think if there's a lot in the back end that you have there to do lot. to get online so i think so i think you know universities will have to work through some of those notions with students as well but i can definitely see in 5 years them coming back um with a change model and the way they teach is going to be different absolutely hey, viraj thank you so much we're with viraj <laughs> patwadan vice president academic digital learning at thomas jefferson university which i actually was admitted to um twitter uh, you can follow him at viraj underscore says so very very cool having you here thanks a lot thank you thank you viraj thank you thank you i think his uh forecasts are absolutely i mean i'm in total agreement um and, and i think the pandemic was an accelerant for all of this transformation we're talking about our next guest Angela Blanchard, senior fellow Watson Institute at Brown University. Angela is a globally recognized expert practitioner in community development. From long-term disaster recovery to effective integration of immigrants and refugees, Angela's evolutionary strategies have successfully revitalized neighborhoods while providing powerful roadmap for cities around the world. Angela's work with businesses, civic and nonprofit leaders uh, tackling complex challenges of community transformation, long-term recovery, and resettlement. Angela has spoken to audiences on six continents in dozens of cities on the role of cities in welcoming and resettling inflows of people, helping dozens of organizations navigate upheaval. Her work and her wisdom has been featured in the New York Times, Fast Company, Magazine, The Atlantic, CNN, NPR, and many other major national programs and publications. Angela was recognized multiple times by the Obama White House and was awarded the prestigious Heinz Prize for improving the human condition while also serving as a senior fellow at Brookings Institution. Please follow, please follow Angela on Twitter at Cajun Angela, C-A-J-U-N-A-N-G-E-L-A. -A -A. Welcome back, Angela, to Disrupt TV. I'm really glad to see you, Vala. Thank you for including me today. And Ray, so nice to be with you. Um, you. I feel very honored. Well, Sorry for cutting your bio short. We only have 20 minutes. <laughs> That's my least favorite part. I like get it over. You are so accomplished. You've done so much. It's an honor for us to be here with you. Uh, but we're all still really learning and evolving. And that's the exciting part, isn't it? Really, that's the whole point of all of the work you're doing here is connecting us all so that we can keep evolving, better understanding the world every day, right? Absolutely. It is. It definitely Absolutely. is. And we're really excited to have you here. You're actually with us on episode 134. Um, so thanks for coming back to the show. And, and this time we, we got a little bit of a different kind of conversation. We're talking about what's going on, right? Whether it's war or weather or loss of health or wealth. I mean, we're shipwrecked, right? Washed up on an unfamiliar shore. And the question is, how do we figure out when do we start to begin again, right? And how do we rebuild our lives, uh, you know, out of our, I don't know, maybe our imaginations or creativity or whatever is available to us. Um, so, yeah. so everyone's asking, like, how do we find a new path to earn or learn and live? And, you know, how do we get this? How do we get, you know, learn from the shipwrecked, as you call it? Yeah. So I, I will dial briefly back to this uh, really wonderful conversation I had with Vala some years back as we were both 
preparing or wrapping up speaking at Business Innovation Factory. And we talked about the, the journey his father made as an immigrant. And what I want to bring to mind today is the fact that all of us alive, if you're here today, you're thriving in any way, you're a descendant of the people that survived the plagues, the genocides, the wars. Um, the, we, we all descend from the people that made their way through the worst and, and then went on to birth us. So we have within us the capacity to recreate our lives, which is this extraordinary human capacity to really reinvent ourselves, to rebuild around us what matters to us and reconstruct community. So that my focus is really on those, uh, those talents and skills that it takes to do that because, because it's pretty hard to escape the fact that many, many more people will be challenged to do that. There are more displaced and more disrupted, more um, stateless, uh, just more people living outside the safety, security, and predictability of their own homes and their own communities. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, no, I imagine- a big shift, so. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I imagine uh, in the last 14, 15 months, uh, we learned a whole new set of lessons uh, in terms of combating and developing communities uh, for a safer, healthier um, environment uh, due, to the, due, due to COVID. In the past, uh, the response to you know, natural disasters was perhaps uh, you know, taking advantage of centers. Um, uh, and, and with the pandemic, it was, it was a duality. It was certainly for healthcare workers uh, you know, dealing with patients there was, you know, again, a need to make sure that you had centers that can deliver care, but you also had this distributed digital only world. And you may have not had the infrastructure, the data, the insights to understand who was being impacted because they were not in a gymnasium or at a community center or at a hospital. And yet they yeah. needed they needed help, they needed care. Yeah. What, what are some of the unique lessons that we learned from the pandemic in that we had to really deal with a with with distance separating uh, us the caregiver and and the folks that needed us most so i have to say um this this is good i'm old so i'm not going to worry about how it sounds we didn't learn anything new what we learned <laughs> is to apply everything that we knew in a new in a different way and we learned that some of the tools that we routinely rely upon that seem like nice luxuries were in fact necessities. And we learned, for example, and um, I'm just gonna blatantly do this, you know, that, it. <laughs> that Salesforce in two days can come up with a solution so um, the PPP can get to small businesses so they don't go under. So we learned that we can take the tools that usually are part of our slower, more thoughtful plans, and then pull them in and have them activated quickly to deliver. You know, we just heard Viraj speak to this. Can we adapt quickly? But adaptation um, is the use to do what you can with what you have where you are right now. And when I wrote my 13 rules that I used all this past year to help all my clients navigate all of this, I didn't change these rules. We Isolation is still a breeding ground for rage and despair. But the way we address isolation is we come together spiritually, emotionally, um, even when we have to stay apart physically. But coming together is essential. And the outreach we need, the connection we need is fundamental. And it is the first thing we do, even if we're compelled to use a different tool and method to do it. Sure, sure. So is it fair to say that technology played a more significant role? Um, yes, we learned we, te technology, um, technology was there to provide an infrastructure for what we've learned so that we didn't have to abandon the lessons of the past disasters. Mm. We merely had to understand and utilize a new way of accomplishing what we've previously accomplished. What, one great lesson of disasters is always like, if everyone has to do the same thing, bring them all together in one place, 
so they can see one another do it. But essentially, people, uh, people, our tech gurus brought us together in one place, but it was on a screen. And we were able to see one another and we were able to be together. And in some, no matter, we've all spoken about being zoomed out, but the fact of the matter is quite a few of us really found the intimacy and connection on that screen that often was even harder to achieve if you had certain barriers pre-pandemic. So we didn't forget that connection was essential. We explored every possible way and adaptation to still have it. So that was, we didn't forget that we have to do what we can with what we have, where we are. That's essential in every disaster. It's innovation is not dreaming up a brand new impossible solution. It's the rearranging of assets and resources within their arena to accomplish what needs to be done today. And that we saw that in beautiful, we saw that over and over again, beautifully displayed. And quite frankly, now I think all of all of the people I'm working with are really busy inventorying because if they don't, of course, I'm nagging them every day to do it. <laughs> you must inventory everything that was created yeah. this past year that you want to bring forward yeah. uh, because the seeds of real advancement and evolutionary uh, a growth in your organization were planted in that necessity, in that yep. necessity. Beautiful yeah. Yep. Beautiful the uh, mother of innovation, as, as people yep. often say. But, but I think the other piece that you're talking about here is extremely important. Uh, the fact that in the more digital world, we could become more isolated. But in fact, what we've learned over time is actually how to blend human scale, blend that with digital scale, right? To get something that's a little bit more interesting uh, in terms of yeah. building innovation and creativity along the way. So, I, that, yeah, I celebrate millennials because I see the millennials as a whole cohort really navigating the online community concept with the face-to-face -face physically present community. They are best at reconciling the two and, and leaving to the digital uh, arena, what needs to be conducted there, but crafting on the ground, what needs to happen there too. And that for me is really what makes them exciting to work with. They're not the only ones. However, yeah. I see that as a special strength of that cohort. But going forward, I mean, you have a great point, right? I mean, when we look back, we always forget that the crisis we've been through could have been done somewhere before and the lessons learned aren't readily available, right? And this notion of having that built into place where people can learn from that or at least have the reference point to figure out what people have done in the past much more easily, especially in the middle of a crisis or yeah. teaching it proactively could be very helpful going forward. Well, we have this tendency to treat each disaster as a one-off. And there are two things that get in our way from learning. One is to treat an event as a one-off when it's clearly a part of a larger pattern. Um, that That is uh, it's an impediment to learning. I mean, everyone in Texas could have treated the freeze as a one-off. We certainly we certainly hope it will be. Um, but on the other <laughs> Let's hand, hope you never go through that again. <laughs> we're not very good at being cold in the dark, um, as it turns out. Um, but I think also the, the, second, the second impediment is to not reflect on what works. We do after action reviews. It says, what could we have done better? Not when we were at our best. And what is most generative about uh, going through a disaster in terms of learning is the examination of where we excelled. Because in those really bright spots, we find, we find the energy and momentum for what we need to face the next disruptive event. Um, I want to say I did witness one thing that I think we all have to factor in. Um, here's the news. Uh, we need to be much more aware of how important it is for us as individuals, families, neighborhoods, and communities to be our own first responders. Mm -hmm. In the absence of the ability of systems mm -hmm. to evolve and respond at the rate of disruption, then we see a lot of people stranded. And in, in the freeze, the one thing that I witnessed that was an awakening for a lot of people, many, many people express it this way. I'm, I'm accustomed to being one of the helpers, not one of the stranded. So typically if you have, if you've got resources and knowledge and awareness and insurance, you see yourself as 
the person on the other side is going to pitch in. And more and more, we have to be resilient at the smallest level because it's a fractal complex system situation. <laughs> if we're, we're adaptive and resilient in the smallest unit, then in the larger unit, we will be too. But if we're not, then each of us risks becoming a part of the group that has to be rescued. And well, we that's a good point. And, and wow. that self-reliance actually is better in Texas than in some other places as well. So that, that's a pretty big statement. So. Well, we've actually taken that to its extre dysfunctional extreme. Um, I, I, I want to point out that there's some lovely points that Raj made about connective tissue. And we learn and we, you know, there's a narrative that says everybody runs like hell achieving in their own lane. Yay us. Um, but actually what true resiliency comes from strengthening the connective tissue between disciplines and institutions and leaders and organizations and every step we take to make to make us a better connected world makes us a more resilient world period you have, uh, unlike Ray, myself, and probably most of our guests, you have personally feet on the street witnessed <laughs> people that have faced uh, the unthinkable. They've lost their homes, their jobs, their loved ones in the most dramatic, scaled way. When you're in the moment, uh, you know, actively engaged as a helper, or when you see others that have chosen purposefully to shift from displaced to helper, do you do you do you do you believe that can be taught? You're at Brown University. Can you teach students to adopt a mindset in order to yes. in order to transition from displaced to helper if and when there is a need for them to do so? Yeah, I I think you can teach it. Uh, you can teach the principles of how to engage constructively and usefully in a healing way, in a helpful way. You can teach the principles. Uh, people are very different though. I, I, there are two, there are many phases of after disaster, but I'll simplify by talking about two. The emergent phase is, is the phase where, as, as was spoken about earlier, you have to be, you know, healthcare workers, first responders, they have to have the discipline to be present and responsive in the moment, not reactive, but responsive in the moment and disciplined in their approach and do the life-saving measures that are called for. What we don't discuss often is the long tail of help, which is after the cameras mm. go away and which <laughs> there's a whole other set of helpers. And those helpers are the people that literally stitch people up. They stitch up individuals, families, communities. Those are the people that are putting things back together in a way that allows us to go on with our lives. And I wanna point out, there are two things we can do for one another, period, in the world. One, we, we take action to help others realize their potential, to help humans grow, flourish, thrive. This is the nurturing side of everything that we do. The other thing we can do is take action to alleviate unnecessary suffering. And so we're, we're engaged in either one of the other. And I'm often really intrigued by uh, looking at uh, this uh, tech world, the digital world, and how it thinks of innovation. But at the end of the day, you're still doing one of those two things. And so I think when you see people step in to help, um, there's always that immediate surge of compassion. And in each of that, each time I remind people a year from now, put it on your calendar. Uh, don't worry about sending that help to the person today, because a year from now they're gonna feel forgotten and they'll be in the long tail of stitching up their lives again and will appreciate the support and the encouragement at that point. So we have to come to understand that it's a journey and it's got discernible stages. And those stages have, uh, there's a pattern, it's universal, uh, war or weather, loss of health or wealth. Uh, the journey looks very similar in terms of uh, what we have to go through to rebuild our lives. This is great. I mean, we've been talking about resiliency, talking about what individuals need to do to be successful, about learning from our past, trying to figure out how to humanize a lot of these events that are happening out there. 
What do you tell students like uh, as, as they're going through this? Because, you know, they're going through policy. They've never really necessarily always experienced these issues. Like, how do you bring that to life to them to give them the empathy that they need to think about what they have to do um, when they graduate? Well, stories first, Ray. Mm. I mean, people really appreciate stories, especially about people who've navigated the unthinkable. Um, the second thing I tell them, I tell them some unpopular things. <laughs> I tell them that the perfect world they seek doesn't exist. And that this ain't, but I shorten it Cajun style. This ain't heaven, it's earth. Most of these things don't. The very definition of a disaster is it exceeds all the systems, the capacity of all the systems that help. So the first law of response is no one's coming. You're there, you're it. And mm. second, do not, do not even think about doing this if you have a great big need to succeed. If you don't like to enter anything without knowing you're gonna be good at it and you're gonna get a certificate at the end, don't go near disasters because um, you're not gonna be helpful. Um, because people in a, in a disaster arena who wanna peel off only the smallest part where they have a guaranteed chance of success, that's not the leadership we need. We need those people willing to drive toward something, trying one thing after another, knowing they're going to repeatedly uh, fail and, and still getting up the next day to try to stitch it up to work. So I'm really, I, I think that I find among students the same thing I find everywhere. Those people willing to commit to something larger themsel than themselves without a guaranteed outcome, that's leadership. Um, the rest is administration and God bless you. We need good administrators, but we don't, do. please don't come to the disaster arena. <laughs> Try to run it. <laughs> we, you will not help. <laughs> but yeah, I, I actually, I don't teach it as much as I scan every single class and hallway and, 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 and gathering place looking for where it exists there. You know, I can tell who my team would be uh, by the way they sit in the chair. You know, they just look like they're on springs and they're ready to go. Yeah. We're that. here with Angela Blanchard, senior fellow at the Watson Institute at Brown University. You can follow her on Twitter at Cajun Angela. Thank you so much for your insights. Very, very well needed, especially as we're coming out of a pandemic into the post-pandemic world. So thanks a lot. And uh, thank you, Angela. You thank you for letting me share. I appreciate it a lot. Take care. It's an honor. Thank, Thank you, you, Angela. Wow. I, I'm so inspired every time I listen to Angela talk. It's, 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 she's an extraordinary person. Speaking of extraordinary person, <laughs> it's our uh, pleasure to have Walter Otto. He's the chief executive and digital leader for um, Kadena Growth Partners, a digital and innovation advisory and venturing organization that operates at the intersection of strategic and innovation thinking with emerging digital technologies and rapid commercialization. Walter is recognized as an expert in the fields of disruptive innovation, business reimagination, and emerging technologies in Europe and Middle East and Africa, where he does most of his work. Walter is a former chief digital and innovation officer at Deloitte, managing and founding partner for Monitor Deloitte and managing partner for De Deloitte Digital in Africa. He was also part of Deloitte Digital Innovation Executive. Walter is a faculty member of Singular University and a TEDx speaker and the recipient of the Constellation Transformation 150 Award, which recognizes the top global executives leading digital business transformation efforts. He's also a professor of practice at the Johannesburg Business School. We just found out Walter just doesn't sleep. He works constantly. Welcome, Walter, to Disrupt TV. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you. You know, we're really excited to have you on, right? We're seeing some massive changes in the future of work. Um, jobs are changing in the digital economy, as you know. And so the relationship between digitization, business modernization, and the impact on work um, is having an impact on jobs. So, uh, you know, we're talking less about work from home, more about the transition of the workforce, uh, new skills, augmented skills, uh, man and machine working together. Let's talk about that. And, uh, you know, let's start with some of your points of view that you've been uh, espousing for quite some time. So let me, let me, perhaps it might make sense to, to highlight why this has become such an important topic for me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm based in Johannesburg, South Africa, the most industrialized country in Africa. Oh, but yeah. also the most unequal 
uh, one of the most unequal countries in the world. You know, currently, I, I just had a look at our unemployment statistics, and it's uh, uh, it's around the thirty percent mark. It's it's um, it's incredible wow. to to comprehend. So we, we've got a private sector that is very competitive, a private sector that's been that's been very effective at globalizing uh, businesses. But we've got this massive uh, unemployment problem. So as as I moved into the digital world uh, and started engaging with organisations, encouraging them to modernise, I, I faced the dilemma that am I perpetuating this unemployment problem? And uh, as I'm encouraging businesses to to modernise, and 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 that got me very interested in the whole construct around the future of work and the future of jobs. And and while the most narratives around the future of work speaks to, you know, how we're going to work, where we're going to work, and what work we're going to do. I started thinking, you know, whether or not, um, how do we create jobs? Is it possible to create jobs through modernization and digitization? And how do we do that? And and, and it comes down to, yeah, it's possible. You know, if, if we are deliberate and orchestrated around modernizing our, our economies, our businesses, uh, and our sectors, uh, I think the outcome from that process will be more jobs than ever before. Uh, and, and it's about, as I mentioned, how we prepared for that shift and, and also how we look at that shift. Now, if I look at the a, a single job uh, and, and a single technology, then there's a good chance that it's going to be a very negative outcome. Hmm. Um, but if we look at all the jobs and all the technologies and the potential ability to expand the economy, uh, then, we, we, then I think the outcome is going to be far more positive because we create jobs that we never thought we would have. Um, and, and we also increase the economic baseload. Uh, and and if we look at economic data from the last 100, 150 years, uh, it's very clear. Uh, industries and countries that have been quick to, to adopt innovation and technology have grown, uh, have, have grown far quicker from an economic perspective than countries that have been slow at adopting or have been resistant to adopting new innovations uh, and technology. So while the debate is is around this crisis of technology, I think we're having a crisis of imagination and a crisis of leadership. Um, and, and so we, we need to uh, get people to think very different around the modernization of, of their businesses. And the conclusion that we can easily arrive at is if we don't modernize, the impact on jobs is going to be far worse than if we do modernize. Um, and and the, just the last thing you know that I want to highlight around that is the I do want to say that one cannot be ignorant that jobs are going to be lost and affected through this process. But the job that that we will lose is a job that has got very negative or has got very weak attributes. So attributes around poor safety, poor productivity, prone to error, low levels of efficiency or relevance. The only thing that's happening now is that those jobs have been eliminated a lot quicker than before uh, as a result of the technology. Wow. Wow, a lot to unpack there. So, I mean, you, you talk about a real digital divide that exists. You talk about economic data that correlates innovation and digital adoption to job creation and, and uh, a, a, a greater plus than minus uh, in terms of in terms of future, future work. Um, so this, this is critically important. And again, at, at the university, I'm sure you're focusing on positioning and teaching students to think about, uh, you know, what type of skills will be in high demand and how you can take advantage of innovation and digital adoption. So uh, when you advise CEOs, because you're constantly consulting CEOs of the biggest companies in the world, what are some of the principles that you're sharing with these business leaders in terms of how to embrace and prepare so that they can achieve maximum stakeholder success, success sure. for their employees, customers, partners, communities, when you're talking about these future of work constructs? So perhaps as a starting point is we've got to recognize that the future of work constructs are multidimensional and, and incredibly complex. Uh, and it, it all, uh, people that are at different stages in their careers, uh, different functions across organizations, um, or, or different, diff different levels of seniority will view the future of work and the future of jobs uh, very differently. Uh, because of, of the, the personal impact. But there's certainly a couple of things that that we need to think about as leaders. One, and Raj spoke about that, is this, 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 um, uh, the fact that our organizations need to become designed for movement. Uh, movement in this digital economy is life. Uh, lack of movement is the opposite. Um, and, and so we're living in the world, in this world where things are becoming quicker, 
Um, and we've seen it over the last uh, 14 months as, as we've been, you know, our economies have been locked down. You know, uh, we, we've seen a rapid acceleration around the modernization of businesses because they've had to do that uh, to survive and to remain relevant. You spoke about your own organization uh, moving rapidly in, in order to continue operating under the circumstances. So I heard a, a lovely term a, 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 about a year and a half ago. I, don't, I can't give it credit to anyone because I don't know who said it, but it was, it was the concept of time plosion. Um, so we're living in a world where there's this explosion of time, we're impatient, um, and, and things are happening quicker, and we have to, as business leaders, we uh, cannot wait to think about things. We need to move very quickly, and we need to be very deliberate and orchestrated around these movements. That's the one thing. Second one is uh, we're in the era of the ecosystem. Um, mm. and, and so this, you know, work and jobs, are, work has been disconnected from jobs. Work and jobs have been disconnected from companies and companies have become platforms. <laughs> uh, and, and the ecosystem construct uh, impacts organizations broadly. It, it impacts how we innovate. So we can be a leading company in terms of innovation, but the innovation inputs could be coming from people that operate on our platforms, outside organizations that we've allowed to come into our ecosystems. Um, we've seen the rise of the creation of unconventional jobs. Uh, which suggests that it's probably a silly thing to think that I need to keep all the expertise in smart, inside my organization for every single eventuality. So we need to move away from owning the expertise uh, to having access to the expertise uh, when we need it. There's a tremendous amount of cognitive surplus in the market. We don't have to own it all. And then that's the ecosystem around how we partner with organizations in our industry and across our industry. And if we get that right, we're also we're able to move uh, a lot quicker. Now, uh, we're able to move a lot quicker in terms of R&D, time to market, reduce error rates, et cetera, and we create a, 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 an ecosystem where everyone benefits from it. Now, if we go back to the skills component of our organization, uh, many human resources departments are, are trained to uh, recruit, train, retain. Uh, and now we're in a world where we, we, we have to embrace the world where we need to access the expertise, uh, we need to curate them into our uh, organization, and we need to engage with them. So many, many departments are struggling with the former. Now we've got to figure out how to do the latter. So again, it's going to be driven by leadership. Um, another uh, you know, lifelong learning, uh, Raj touched on that. It's mm. my favorite topic. I, I certainly have a tremendous amount of anxiety. I feel like I cannot keep up, and this is the world that I'm in. Um, so we need to embrace lifelong learning. And again, I, I love data points. Uh, knowledge is decaying depending on how you interpret it, but our knowledge decays at about 30% a year. So anything in our repertoire that's older than three years is completely I've forgotten irrelevant. everything. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God we have this show with people like you coming on every week because that, that's the only way I can think of combating that 30% decay. Sorry. That was, wow. That's a stunning stat. And I think if you're moving to uh, industries that are um, leveraging exponential technologies like AI and think of distributed ledger, I think that decays a lot quicker. You know, what was cool 18 months ago is probably an uncompetitive uh, now. And then we also, you know, in terms of lifelong learning, uh, we, we have to embrace, I think we need to embrace a mindset where uh, we, we need to become hybrids. Uh, and hybrid doesn't mean that we average in two or three or two or more skills. It means that we're equally deep in a variety of skills. So I'm a doctor that understands artificial intelligence, an architect that understands IT, an engineer that understands robotics. Uh, and, and I think that's going to have more and more value for organizations. And then the last thing I want to say uh, around lifelong learning uh, for the individual is that if we want to differentiate ourselves in this world of the machine and digital technologies and exponential technologies, we've got to use what makes us unique, and that's our humanness. Um, so uh, moving beyond just STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, and embracing stempathy, our ability to show empathy, communicate, socialize, engage, tell stories, I think is uh, very important uh, in, in the world that we're in. And we need to encourage this. I think this is a great way of disseminating knowledge. Um, th there's a few other points, but perhaps uh, one that I want to highlight that maybe uh, leans on, on some of the stuff that Angela covered with us is that as leaders, and specifically leaders in, in emerging markets uh, where we've got the employment challenges, uh, we need to embrace social sustainability. Hmm. And, and there's, there's, there's a lovely term that I picked up when, when I spent a bit of time in the Nordics just before lockdown, and that is Nordic exceptionalism, which basically says that um, if I want to be successful, I've got to make sure that the society within which I operate is successful as well. 
So I am because everyone is, you know, I, I'm, for me to be successful, uh, the society around me is also successful and we create this, we, we carry a sense of responsibility. Uh, in South Africa, we've got a term called Ubuntu, which means, Ubuntu. you know, we've got, Yes, the we've Celtics got adopted that, the Boston Celtics, when they won the 2008 championship, that was the North Star guiding principle. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Terrific. And, 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 but we mustn't just use the word, which you know, it certainly evokes positive emotion. We've got to be serious about this. Yes. And so, um, and, and I had a, a great experience on, on a, a significant, a very large corporate venturing pro program I did with a, a local energy company uh, about two, two years, just over two years ago. And that CEO set a target to create a phenomenal, a phenomenally successful business. Uh, but, and we had criteria for success, you know, a certain growth rate, a certain level of profitability. And one of the key criteria that could, could uh, halt an initiative was it has to do good to the society within which we operate. Um, and, and, and if we couldn't tick that box, then we wouldn't continue with that initiative. And we need to embrace that kind of thinking. And so as we think about new products, if I speak to the ability to create jobs, it's about how do I bring entrepreneurs or what I refer to as micro-entrepreneurs and platform businesses into my organization um, to better serve my customer. So think of last mile, last meter delivery. Um, platform businesses are very good to do that. And I, as an organization, don't need to own all the infrastructure to get it done. Uh, and by doing that, we can create jobs uh, for people that typically don't have high, very high levels of education. You know, they, they haven't had the opportunity for tertiary education or whatever the case might be, which makes them very difficult to employ in the digital economy. But they can fulfill a, a very important uh, function uh, in the platform economy that allows me to service my customers uh, in, in a very special way. Wow. That's ecosystem that thinking, lifelong learning, which you call you know, critical career oxygen, connected workforce. And I love this holistic success mindset with, 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 with focus on social sustainability. These are very, very important and excellent guidance to CXOs. Really, really great. Wow, there was a lot to unpack there. That was awesome. Sorry, Ray. <laughs> no, 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 definitely. This is, uh, I mean, we've been learning a lot here, thinking about what happens in terms of creating these systems. Um, and, and really, you know, you've been talking about how to actually activate the creation of jobs using technology through platforms. Um, yes. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, what these new business models are and actually where you can target them in historically areas where employment is really low. Correct. So, uh, again, you know, th th there's a couple, but the, the three that I've, uh, the three categories that I've spent a lot of time understanding and seeing how we can uh, integrate them into uh, large, uh, successful businesses uh, would be, first of all, a, a very popular one, collaborative consumption. You know, um, as a poor individual, I can't justify the ownership of the asset, but if I can get the community to use that asset, uh, then I can justify the ownership of that asset. Um, and the community benefits from the asset as if they owned it, right? So a collaborative consumption. And Uber is probably a great example. Uh, if you think of the employment that Uber's created in many emerging markets, it's, it rivals some very large uh, employer groups. And an interesting stat that I read a while back was that Uber was uh, number two, uh, the number two employer in India after India Rail. Uh, which is pretty significant, right? Now, th there's other examples, you know, in in, uh, in West Africa, Nigeria, Ghana, we've got companies like Trotro uh, and Hello Tractor that have created, used that similar concept to create a, a smart tractor that can be used by the community and tracked by the entrepreneur. So what you do there is you create predictability in the farming process, more efficiencies that allows the farmer to farm more land and employ more people. Uh, in East Africa, you've got things like the Shriki Hub, which is the ownership of a, um, a uh, essentially uh, for rural areas, um, uh, Wi-Fi hub owned by the entrepreneur and he essentially activates a rural village with Wi-Fi connectivity. Uh, and, and so that, that allows people to get onto platforms in which they can maybe gain employment, uh, but also communicating you know, uh, and, and get connected and so on. And again, collaborative consumption creates a tremendous amount of, uh, of jobs um, one of my the, the second lever, one of my favorite levers is distributed value chains. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and what I like about distributed value chains is that there's components of the value chain en route to the customer that a large corporate cannot pop, play in because it doesn't make economic sense. So if they want to play, they, they, it costs them more money to be in it than not.
that the customer wants it. Now, we could, um, uh, you can use the micro-entrepreneur to fulfill that, that, that role. Now, the micro-entrepreneur, and I forgot to mention it earlier, is not the individual that invents the technology, but the individual that uses the technology to create employment. So um, you, you've got phenomenal uh, businesses around the world um, that, that, that uh, have enabled that. DoorDash been a great example, sure, you know, sure. uh, that, that has created over 500,000 jobs uh, around the world. In, in South Africa, we've got companies like Hey Jude. Uh, we've got companies like uh, Sweep South that uh, have taken uh, the, the construct of a, you know, a home cleaner, um, which is a very informal uh, type job. And then they put them on this platform. Uh, and, and by putting them on the platform, they, they give them more security. They, they give them job benefits. They earn it a lot more, uh, et cetera. And, and the whole process is a lot more controlled. Um, and, and so that's another form of, of employment. And, and just a couple of companies that, you know, that often cite, they themselves have created over a million jobs, uh, half a dozen to seven companies that I cite in, in uh, the, the examples that I, that I provide. Um, and then the final category is, is using digital as an economic catalyst. And that's where you take old, um, um, old uh, school businesses that have sort of lost their flair and their excitement uh, and you revive them through digital. And, and two of my favorite, the, the, again, uh, by, you know, launched by South African entrepreneurs, uh, one is called Livestock Invest. Um, and uh, in, in across Africa, it's very traditional um, that uh, an individual wants to own livestock. Um, but, but if you live in the city, it's just not possible. Uh, and so someone's got to look after your livestock across you know, a few hundred kilometers away, um, and then you don't know what's happening with your livestock. So this individual, Livestock Invest, uh, IOT'd the cow. Uh, <laughs> I, can, I can buy a, a cow. Uh, and, and, I, and I can track the, my cow on, on, on the app. And if I can't afford a full cow, I can go uh, into fractional ownership with someone else. Fractional ownership. That's me and Bitcoin. I can't afford the whole thing, so I got to go fractional. And another one is along the sim similar veins is um, a, a group called and, – and by the way, I've got no interest in the companies that I'm list sure. uh, listing um, – but a group called the Fed Group um, have created a platform that allows me to invest into uh, into uh, farmers, so either into blueberry projects, honey projects, etc. And so mm -hmm. I can put money into the farmer. They set up a, a beehive for me. They will uh, get the beehive to production, harvest the beehive, package the honey, sell it, and then I get my fourteen percent dividend, which in today's world is wow. is not uh, bad at all. Wow. And so by doing that, I, I, I'm creating a job somewhere. And I think that's how we can leverage digital to create jobs that we, would be completely inconceivable to create if we didn't have these platforms and these digital capabilities to do so. That's amazing. This is amazing. wonderful. Um, yeah, we're here with Walter Adeo. Um, he's at Kadena Partners, Kadena Growth Partners. And more importantly, you can follow him on Twitter at Aldeo, uh V1SA for South Africa and uh, Val Hadan. So. You're quite the fungi. Thank you. So thank, thank you, you sir. very, very much. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Wow, Ray. Wow, Ray. You, uh, was you that know, an hour? Like, just that, We could have spent an hour with each of our guests just on the topics we covered with them individually. Amazing show. Please unpack. Every segment had lots and lots of, what I say, gold nuggets of wisdom that we need to unpack. That was episode 236. Next week, episode 237, Jennifer Ives, Senior Vice President of Global Partnerships and Alliances at Three Pillar Global. We have Ashtush, God, help me with the last name, Ray. Priyadarshi. Priyadarshi, founder of Sun Sama. And we have Diane Hinchcliffe, who's uh, one of my favorite uh, technology analysts, futurist, Vice President, Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. So that's next week. Uh, closing remarks, Ray, on lifelong learning, disaster recovery, and sustainable micro-entrepreneurship and new business model innovation that we can take advantage of in the future. 
Look, the human quotient is super important. That's what we're focused on. I'm finishing up a paper on dynamic skills, talking about that in the context of continuous learning. We're seeing that play a big role. As digital becomes more important, as Angela was saying, we are actually gonna be more isolated. So the question is actually, how do we humanize what's happening in the digital world? I'm hoping that that changes over time and that we start putting these capabilities inside organizations. It's more than just reskilling, retraining. It's changing the framework, the frame of mind, uh, that mindset of how we're actually thinking about how we build our own careers, what we do with the people around us, and more importantly, how we fit in a world that is going to become more part of platforms and digitization. So I think we got all that with our three guests, and I thought that was pretty powerful. What about you? I, I can't add to that, Ray. <laughs> I just, uh, I know what I'm going to be doing this weekend, re-watching the show, because uh, our guests dropped a lot of meaningful wisdom that I need to uh, absorb a second, third, fourth time. Uh, really, really, it's, it's a great privilege that you and I have to learn from the best and brightest people every week. We want to thank our audience. Please suggest guests to us. We've booked for the next several months, but we still have opportunity to bring your favorite thought leaders, entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, venture capitalists, CEOs onto our show. Uh, so please uh, follow Disrupt TV show on Twitter. Send Ray, myself, your recommended guest, and we'll do our best to get them on the show. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, and if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. We'll see you every week at 11 p.m. Well, actually, 11 a.m., not p.m. Oh, my God. 11 a.m. <laughs> Pacific and 2 p.m. Uh, Eastern every Friday. Thanks a lot, everyone. Cheers, everyone.